That's some good coffee. Oh, I do make good coffee. Hello, hello. Um, welcome to another episode of Who Knows, a podcast where I read things to you so you don't have to. You just listen, learn something, laugh, cry, do whatever you got to do. Uh, it's been a while. I, uh, I just tried to record this and then I got a phone call from my daughter, so I had to start over, but it has been a while since I've read a lot of things going on, working on building up a business and my kids and schools, uh, started and lots of things life, right? Am I right? <laughs> um, but I'm going to get back to it. I carved out some time to get some books read and get some some episodes up for you guys. So, Because I know there's some, some of you who listen to me all the time. And I really appreciate you guys. So thank you for that. Um, I know some of my stuff's kind of boring. But whatever. It's just reading. You just put yourself there, I guess. I'll try to be a little bit... Uh, more animated as I read too. Uh, the book we're reading right now is The Richest Man in Babylon. Um, we're on chapter 9. And we have about 20 pages left. So I'm just going to finish this whole book. And if you have listened to me before. You know that once I'm done with the book. I do like to... Um, I would like to donate it to somebody. So if you want this copy uh, that I'm reading right now, I will. Uh, you just hit me up wherever you can find me. It's the internet. I'm on the. I'm on the internet. Um, you can find me and say I want this book, and I'll ship it out to you. So I have the ability to do that pretty quickly. Um, so yeah. Without further ado, we're gonna go back into the richest man in Babylon and finish it. Chapter 9, The Clay Tablets from Babylon. Tablet 1. Now, when the moon becometh full, I, Dabasir, who am but recently returned from slavery in Syria, with the determination to pay my many just debts and become a man of means worthy of respect in my native city of Babylon, do here engrave upon the clay a permanent record of my affairs to guide and assist me in carrying through my high desires. Under the wise advice of my good friend Mathon, the gold lender, I am determined to follow an exact plan that he doth say will lead any honorable man out of debt into means and self-respect. This plan includeth three purposes, which are my hope and desire. First, the plan doth provide for my future prosperity. Therefore, one-tenth of all I earn shall be set aside as my own to keep. For Mathon speaketh wisely when he saith, That man who keepeth in his purse purse both gold and silver that he need not spend is good to his family and loyal to his king the man who hath but a few coppers in his purse is indifferent to his family and indifferent to his king but the man who hath not in his purse is unkind to his family and is disloyal to his king for his own heart is bitter therefore the man who wisheth to achieve must have coin that he may keep to jingle in his purse that he have in his heart love for his family and loyalty to his king. 
Second, the plan doth provide that I shall support and clothe my good wife who hath returned me to me with loyalty from the house of her father. For Mathon doth say that to take good care of a faithful wife putteth self-respect into the heart of a man and addeth strength and determination to his purposes. Therefore, seven-tenths of all I earn shall be used to provide a home, clothes to wear, and food to eat, with a bit of extra to spend, that our lives be not lacking in pleasure and enjoyment. But he doth further enjoin the greatest care that we spend not greater than seven-tenths of what I earn for these worthy purposes. Herein lieth the success of the plan. I must live upon this portion and never use more, nor buy what I may not pay for out of his portion. Third, the plan doth provide that out of my earnings my debts shall be paid. Therefore, each time the moon is full, two-tenths of all I have earned shall be divided honorably and fairly among those who have trusted me and to whom I am indebted. Thus in due time I will thus in due time will all my indebtedness be surely paid. Therefore do I hereby do I here engrave the name of every man to whom I am indebted and the honest amount of my debt. Faru, the cloth weaver, two silver, six copper. Sinjar, the couch maker, one silver. Amar, my friend, three silver, one cocker, copper. Zankar, my friend, four silver, seven copper. Askamir, my friend, one silver, three copper. Herenseer, the jewel maker, six silver, two copper. Dyerbecker, my father's friend, four silver, one copper. Alkahad, the house owner, fourteen silver. Mathon, the gold lender, nine silver. Beregic, the farmer, one silver, seven copper. From here on, disintegrated cannot be deciphered. The rest of the tablet got disintegrated and couldn't be deciphered. And that was tablet two. Tablet three. To these creditors do I owe in total 119 pieces of silver and 141 pieces of copper. Because I did owe these sums and saw no way to repay, in my folly I did permit my wife to return to her father and did leave my native city and seek easy wealth somewhere elsewhere, only to find disaster and to see myself sold into the degradation of slavery. Now that Mathon doth show me how I can repay my debts and small sums of my earnings, do I realize the great extent of my folly in running away from the results of my extravagances? Therefore, have I visited my creditors and explained to them that I have no resources with which to pay except my ability to earn and that I intend to apply two-tenths of all I earn upon my indebtedness evenly and honestly. This much can I pay, but no more. Therefore, if they be patient in time, my obligations will be paid in full. Amar, whom I thought my best friend, re reveled me bitterly, and I left him in humiliation. Berejik, the farmer, pleaded that I pay him first, as he didst badly need help. Al-Kahad, the house owner, was indeed disagreeable, and insisted that he would make me trouble unless I did soon settle in full with him. All the rest willingly accepted my proposal. Therefore, I am more determined than ever to carry through, being convinced that it is easier to pay one's just debts than to avoid them. Even though I cannot meet the needs and demands of a few of my creditors, I will deal impartially with all. Tablet 4 Again, the moon shines full. I have worked hard with a free mind. My good wife hath supported my intentions to pay my creditors. Because of our wise determination, I have earned during the past moon buying camels of sound wind 
and good legs for Nebuchadnezzar, the sum of nineteen pieces of silver. This I have divided according to the plan. One-tenth I have set aside to keep as my own. Seven-tenths I have divided with my good wife to pay for our living. Two-tenths I have divided among my creditors as evenly as could be done in coppers. I did not see Amar, but left it with his wife. Birajit was so pleased he would kiss my hand. Old Alcahad alone was grouchy and said I must pay faster. To which I replied that if I were permitted to be well fed and not worried, that alone would enable me to pay faster. All the others thanked me and spoke well of my efforts. Therefore, at the end of one moon, my indebtedness is reduced by almost four pieces of silver, and I possess almost two pieces of silver besides a pawn which hath which no man hath claimed. My heart is lighter than it hath been for a long time. Again the moon shines full. I have worked hard, but with poor success. Few camels have I been able to buy. Only eleven pieces of silver have I earned. Nevertheless, my good wife and I have stood by the plan, even though we have bought no new raiment and eaten little but herbs. Again I paid ourselves one-tenth of the eleven pieces, while we lived upon seven-tenths. I was surprised when Amar Compton commended my payment, even though small. So did Birajik. Our Alcahad flew into a rage, but when I told but when told to give back his portion if he did not wish it, he became reconciled. The others, as before, were content. Again the moon shines full, and I am greatly rejoiced. I intercepted a fine herd of camels and bought many sound ones. Therefore my earnings were forty two pieces of silver. This moon my wife and myself have bought much needed sandals and raiment. Also we have dined well on meat and fowl. More than eight pieces of silver we had paid to our creditors, even all Kahad did not protest. Great is the plan, for it leadeth us out of debt and giveth us wealth, which is ours to keep. Three times the moon had been full since I last carved upon this clay. Each time I paid to myself one-tenth of all I earned. Each time my good wife and I have lived upon seven-tenths, even though at times it was difficult. Each time I have paid to my creditors two-tenths. In my purse I now have twenty-one pieces of silver that are mine. It maketh my head to stand straight upon my shoulders, and maketh me proud to walk among my friends. My wife keepeth, my wife keepeth well our home, and is becomingly gowned. We are happy to live together. The plan is of untold value. Hath it not made an honorable man of an ex-slave? Tablet 5 Again, the moon shines full, and I remember that it is long since I carved upon the clay. Twelve moons in truth have come and gone, but this day I will not neglect my record, because upon this day I have paid the last of my debts. This is the day upon which my good wife and my thankful self celebrate with great feasting that our determination hath been achieved. <clears throat> Many things occurred upon my final visit to my creditors that I shall long remember. Amar begged my forgiveness for his unkind words and said that I was one of all the others he most desired for a friend. Old Alcahad is not so bad after all, for he said, Thou wert just once a piece of soft clay to be pressed and molded by any hand that touched thee. But now <clears throat> thou art a piece of bronze capable of holding an edge. If thou needest silver or gold at any time, come to me. Nor is he the only one who holdeth me in high regard. Many others speak differently, differentially to me. 
My good wife looketh upon me with a light in her eyes that doth make a man have confidence in himself. Yet it is the plan that hath made my success. It hath enabled me to pay all my debts and to jingle both gold and silver in my purse. I do commend it to all who wish to get ahead, for truly, if it will enable an ex-slave to pay his debts and have gold in his purse, will it not aid any man to find independence? Nor am I, myself, finished with it, for I am convinced that if I follow it further, it will make me rich among men. <clears throat> That's the end of chapter 9. Going into chapter 10. The luckiest man in Babylon. At the head of his caravan proudly rode Sharunada, the merchant prince of Babylon. He liked fine cloth and wore rich and becoming robes. He liked fine animals and sat easily upon his spirited Arabian stallion. To look at him, one would hardly have guessed his advanced years. Certainly they would not have suspected that he was inwardly troubled. The journey from Damascus is long, and the hardships of the desert many. These he minded not. The Arab tribes are fierce and eager to loot rich caravans. These he feared not, for his many feet-mounted guards were a safe protection. Fleet-mounted guards were a safe protection. About the youth at his side, whom he was bringing from Damascus, was he disturbed. This was Hayden Gula, the grandson of his partner of other years, Arad Gula, to whom he felt he owed a debt of gratitude, which could never be repaid. He would like to do something for his grandson, but the more he considered this, the more difficult it seemed because of the youth himself. Eyeing the young man's rings and earrings, he thought to himself, he thinks jewels are for men. Still, he has his grandfather's strong face, but his grandfather wore no such gouty robes. Yet I sought him to come, hoping I might help get help him get a start for himself and get away from the wreck his father Get away from the wreck his father has made of their inheritance. Hayden Gula broke up, broke in upon his thoughts. Why dost thou work so hard, riding always with thy caravan upon its long journeys? Dost thou never take time to enjoy life? Sharunada smiled. To enjoy life, he repeated. What wouldst thou do to enjoy life if thou were Sharunada? If I had wealth equal to thine, I would live like a prince. Never across the hot desert would I ride. I would spend the shekels as fast as they came to my purse. I would wear the richest of robes and the rarest of jewels. That would be a life to my liking, a life worth living. Both men laughed. Thy grandfather wore no, no jewels, Sharunata spoke before he thought, then continued jokingly. Wouldst thou leave no time for work? Work was made for slaves, Hadangula responded. Sharanada bit his lip but made no reply, riding in silence until the trail led them to the slope. Here he reined his mount and pointing to the green valley far away. See, there is the valley. Look far down and thou canst faintly see the walls of Babylon. The tower is the temple of Bel. If thine eyes are sharp, thou mayest even see the smoke from the eternal fire upon its crest. So that is Babylon? Always have I longed to see the wealthiest city in all the world, Hayden Gula commented. Babylon, where my grandfather started his fortune, where he would he were still alive, we would not be so sorely pressed. 
Why wish his spirit to linger on earth beyond its allotted time? Thou and thy father can well carry on his good work. Alas, of us, neither has his gift. Father and myself know not his secret for attracting the golden shekels. Sharunada did not reply, but gave rein to his mount and rode thoughtfully down the trail to the valley. Behind them followed the caravan in a cloud of reddish dust. Sometime later, they reached the king's highway and turned south through the irrigated farms. Three old men plowing a field caught Sharunada's attention. They seemed strangely unfamiliar. They seemed strangely familiar. How ridiculous! One does not pass a field after forty years and find the same men plowing there, yet something within in him said they were the same. One with an uncertain grip held the plow, the others laboriously, laboriously plodded beside the oxen, ineffectually beating them with their barrel slaves, staves to keep them pulling. Forty years ago he had envied these men, how gladly he would have exchanged places. But what a difference now. With pride, he looked back at his trailing caravan, well-chosen camels and donkeys, loaded high with valuable goods from Damascus. All this was but one of his possessions. He pointed to the plowers, saying, Still plowing the same field where they were forty years ago. They look it, but why thinkest thou they are the same? I saw them there, Sharunado replied. Recollections were racing rapidly through his mind. Why could he not bear the past and live in the present? Then he saw, as in a picture, the smiling face of Aragula, the barrier between himself and the cynical youth beside him dissolved. But how could he help such a superior youth with his spendthrift ideas and bejeweled hands? Work he could offer in plenty to willing workers, but not for men who considered themselves too good for work. Yet he owed it to Arad Gula to do something, not a half-hearted attempt. He and Arad Gula had never done things that way. They were not that sort of men. A plan came almost in a flash. There were objections. He must consider his own family and his own standing. It would be cruel. It would hurt. Being a man of quick decisions, he waived objections and decided to act. Wouldst thou be interested in hearing how thy worthy grandfather and myself joined in the partnership which proved so profitable, he questioned. Why not just tell me thou maddest the golden shekels? That is all I need to know, the young man parried. Sharunada ignored the reply and continued. We start with these men, those men plowing. I was no older than thou. As the column of men in which I marched approached, in which I marched approached, Good old Megiddo, the farmer, scoffed at the slipshod way in which they plowed. Megiddo was chained next to me. Look at the lazy fellows, he protested. The plow holder makes no effort to plow deep, nor do the beaters keep the oxen in the furrow. How can they expect to raise a good crop with poor plowing? Didst thou say Megiddo was chained to thee? Hayden Gula asked in surprise. Yes, with bronze collars about her necks and a length of heavy chain between us. Next to him was Zabato, the sheep thief. I had known him in Harun. At the end was a man we called Pirate because he told us not his name. We judged him as a sailor as he had entwined serpents tattooed upon his chest in sailor fashion. The column was made up thus so the men could walk in fours. Thou wert chained as a slave? Hadingula asked incredulously. Did, thy gran Did not thy grandfather tell thee I was once a slave? He often spoke of thee, but never hinted of this. He was a man thou couldst trust with inner, in, 
He was a man thou couldst trust with innermost secrets. Thou too art a man I may trust, am I not right? Sharunata looked him squarely in the eye. Thou mayest rely upon my silence, but I am amazed. Tell me how did thou come to be a slave? Sharunata shrugged his shoulders. Any man may find himself a slave. It was a gaming house and barley beer that brought me disaster. I was the victim of my brother's indiscretions. In a brawl, he killed his friend. I was bonded to the window by my father, desperate to keep my brother from being prosecuted under the law. When my father could not raise the silver to free me, she in anger sold me to the slave dealer. What a shame and injustice, Hayden Gula protested. But tell me, how didst thou regain freedom? We shall come to that, but not yet. Let us continue my tale. As we passed, the plowers jeered at us. One did doff his ragged hat and bow low, calling out, Welcome to Babylon, guests of the king. He waits for thee on the city of walls where the banquet is spread, mud bricks and onion soup. With that, they laughed uproariously. Pirate flew into a rage and cursed them roundly. What do those men mean by the king awaiting us on the walls? I asked him. To the city walls ye march to carry bricks until the back breaks. Maybe they beat thee to death before it breaks. They won't beat me. I'll kill them. Then Megiddo spoke up. It doesn't make sense to me to talk of masters beating willing, hard-working slaves to death. Masters like good slaves and treat them well. Who wants to work hard? commented Zabato. Those plowers are wise fellows. They're not breaking their backs, just letting on as if they be. Thou can't get ahead by shirking, Megiddo protested. If thou plow a hectare, that's a good day's work, and any master knows it. But when thou plow only a half, that's shirking. I don't shirk. I like to work, and I like to do good work, for work is the best friend I've ever known. It has brought me all the good things I've had, my farm and cows and crops and everything. Yeah, and where be these things now, scoffed Zabato. I figure it pays better to be smart and get by without working. You watch, Zabato. If you're if we're sold to the walls, he'll be carrying the water bag or some easy job when thou, who like to work, will be breaking thy back carrying bricks. He laughed his silly laugh. Terror gripped me that night. I could not sleep. I crowded close to the guard rope, and when the others slept, I attracted... I attracted the attention of Godoso, who was doing the first guard watch. He was one of those brigade Arabs, the sort of rogue who, if he robbed thee of thy purse, would think he must also cut thy throat. Tell me, Godoso, I whispered, when we get to Babylon, will we be sold to the walls? Why want to know? He questioned cautiously. Canst thou not understand? I pleaded. I am young. I want to live. I don't want to be worked or beaten to death on the walls. Is there any chance for me to get a good master? He whispered back. I tell something, thou good fellow. Give Godoso no trouble. Most times we go first to slave market. Listen now. When buyers come, tell them you're a good worker, like to work hard for good master. Make them want to buy. You not make them buy. Next day you carry brick. Mighty hard work. After he walked away, I lay in the warm sand looking up at the stars and thinking about work. What Megiddo had said about it being his best friend made me wonder if it would be my best friend. Certainly it would be if it helped me out of this. When Megiddo awoke, I whispered my good news to him. It was our one ray of hope as we marched toward Babylon. Late in the afternoon, we approached the walls and could see the lines of men. 
like black ants climbing up and down the steep diagonal paths. As we drew closer, we were amazed at the thousands of men working. Some were digging in the moat, others mixed the dirt into mud bricks. The greatest numbers were carrying the bricks in large baskets up those steep trails to the masons. Overseers cursed the laggards and cracked bullock whips over the backs of those who failed to keep in line. Poor, worn-out fellows were seen to stagger and fall beneath their heavy baskets, unable to rise again. If the lash failed to bring them to their feet, they were pushed to the side of the pass and left writhing in agony. Soon they would be dragged down to join other craven bodies beside the roadway to await unsanctified graves. As I beheld the ghastly sight, I shuddered. So this is what awaited my father's son if he failed at the slave market. Godoso had been right. We were taken through the gates of the city to the slave prison, and next morning marched to the pens in the market. Here the rest of the men huddled in fear, and only the whips of our guard could keep them moving so the buyers could examine them. Megiddo and myself eagerly talked to every man who permitted us to address him. The slave dealer brought soldiers from the king's guard who shackled Pirate and brutally beat him when he protested. As they led him away, I felt sorry for him. Megiddo felt that we would soon part. When no buyers were near, he talked to me earnestly to impress upon me how valuable work would be to me in the future. Some men hate it. They make it their enemy. Better to treat it like a friend. Make thyself like it. Don't mind because it is hard. If thou thinkest about what a good house thou build, then who cares if the beams are heavy and it is far from the well to carry the water for the plaster? Promise me, boy, if thou get a master, work for him as hard as thou canst. If he does not appreciate all thou do, never mind. Remember, work well done does good to the man who does it. It makes him a better man. He stopped as a burly farmer came to the enclosure and looked at us critically. Megiddo asked about his farm and crops, soon convincing him that he would be a viable man. After violent bargaining with the slave dealer, the farmer drew a fat purse from beneath his robe, and soon Megiddo had followed his new master out of sight. A few other men were sold during the morning. At noon, Godoso confided to me that the dealer was disgusted and would not stay over another night, but would take all who remained at sundown to the king's buyer. I was becoming desperate when a fat, good-natured man walked up to the wall and inquired if there was a banker among us. I approached him, saying, Why should a good baker like thyself seek another baker for inferior ways? Would it not be easier to teach a willing man like myself? Guild ways? Look at me. I am young, strong, and like to work. Give me a chance, and I will do my best to earn gold and silver for thy purse. He was impressed by my willingness and began bargaining with the dealer who had never noticed me since he had bought me but now wax eloquent on my abilities, good health and good disposition. I felt like a fat ox being sold to a butcher. At last, much to my joy, the deal was closed. I followed my new master away, thinking I was the luckiest man in Babylon. My new home was much to my liking. Nana Nade, my master, taught me how to grind the barley in the stone bowl and stood in the country yard, or the courtyard, how to build the fire in the oven, and then how to grind very fine the sesame flour for the honey cakes. I had a couch in the shed where his grain was stored. The old slave housekeeper, Swasti, fed me well and was pleased at the way I helped her with the heavy tasks. Here was the chance I had longed for to make myself valuable to my master, and I hoped to find a way to earn my freedom. 
I asked Nana Nade to show me how to knead the bread and to bake. This he did. Much pleased at my willingness, later when I could do this well, I asked him to show me how to make the honey cakes, and soon I was doing all the baking. My master was glad to be idle, but Swasti shook her head in disapproval. No work to do is bad for any man, she declared. I felt it was time for me to think of a way by which I might start to earn coins to buy my freedom. As the baking was finished at noon, I thought Nana and Nate would approve if I found profitable employment for the afternoons and might share my earnings with me. Then he thought. Then the thought came to me, why not bake more of the honey cakes and peddle them to hungry men upon the streets of the city? I presented my plan to Nana and Nate this way. If I can use my afternoons after the baking is finished to earn for three for the coins, would it be only fair for thee to share my earnings with me that I might have money of my own to spend for those things which every man desires and needs? Fair enough, fair enough, he admitted. When I told him of my plan to peddle our honey cakes, he was very well pleased. Here is what we will do, he suggested. Thou sellest them at two for a penny. Then half of the pennies will be mine to pay for the flour and the honey and the wood to bake them. Of the rest I shall take half and thou shalt keep half. I was much pleased by his generous offer that I might keep for myself one-fourth of my sales. That night I worked late to make my to make a tray upon which to display them. Nana Nade gave me one of his worn robes that I might look well, and Swasti helped me patch it and wash it clean. The next day I baked an extra supply of honey cakes. They looked brown and tempting upon the tray as I went along the street, loudly calling my wares. At first, no one seemed interested, and I became discouraged. I kept on, and later in the afternoon, as men became hungry, the cakes began to sell, and soon my tray was empty. Nana Nade was very well pleased with my success and gladly paid me my share. I was delighted to own pennies. Megiddo had been right when he said a master appro appreciated good work from his slaves. That night, I was so excited over my success, I could hardly sleep and tried to figure out how much I could earn in a year and how many years it would be required to buy my freedom. As I went forth with my tray of cakes every day, I soon found regular customers. One of these was none other than thy grandfather, Arad Gula. He was a rug merchant and sold to the housewives, going from one end of the city to the other, accompanied by a donkey loaded high with rugs and a black slave to tend it. He would buy two cakes for himself and two for his slave, always tarrying to talk with me while he, they ate them. Thy grandfather said something to me one day that I shall always remember. I like thy cakes, boy, but better still, I like the fine enterprise with which thou offerest them. Such spirit can carry thee far on the road to success. But how canst thou understand, Hayden Gula, what such words of encouragement could mean to a slave boy, lonesome in a great city? struggling with all he had in him to find a way out of his humiliation. As the months went by, I continued to add pennies to my purse. It began to have a comforting weight upon my belt. Work was proving to be my best friend, just as Megiddo had said. I was happy, but Swasti was worried. Thy master, I fear to have him spend so much time at the gaming houses, she protested. I was overjoyed one day to meet my friend Megiddo upon the street. He was leading three donkeys loaded with vegetables to the market. I am doing mighty well, he said. My master does appreciate my good work, for now I am a foreman. See, he does trust the marketing to me, and also he is sending for my family. Work is helping me to recover from my great trouble. Someday it will help me to buy my freedom and once more own a farm of my own. 
Time went on, and Nana Nade became more and more anxious for me to return from the from Sally. He would be waiting when I returned, and would eagerly count and divide our money. He would also urge me to seek further markets and increase my sales. Often, I went outside the city gates to solicit the overseers of the slaves building the walls. I hated to return to the, to the, to the disagreeable sites, but found the overseers liberal buyers. One day, I was surprised to see Zabato waiting in line to fill his basket with bricks. He was gaunt and bent, and his back was covered with welts and sores from the whips of the overseers. I was sorry for him and handed him a cake, which he crushed into his mouth like a hungry animal. Seeing the greedy look in his eyes, I ran before he could grab my tray. Why dost thou work so hard? Aragula said to me one day. Almost the same question thou asked of me today. Dost thou remember? I told him what Megiddo had said about work and how it was proving to be my best friend. I showed him with pride my wallet of pennies and explained how I was saving them to buy my freedom. When thou art free, what wilt thou do? he inquired. Then, I answered, I intend to become a merchant. At that, he confided in me, something I had never suspected. Thou knowest not that I also am a, a slave. I am in partnership with my master. Stop, demanded Hayden Gula. I will not listen to lies defaming my grandfather. He was no slave. His eyes blazed in anger. Sharunada remained calm. I honor him for rising above his misfortune and becoming a leading citizen of Damascus. Art thou, his grandson, cast of the same mold? Art thou man enough to face true facts, or dost thou prefer to live under false illusions? Hayden Gula straightened his, uh, in his saddle. In a voice suppressed with deep emotion, he replied, My grandfather was beloved by all. Countless were his good deeds. When the famine came, did not his gold buy grain in Egypt? And did not his caravan bring it to Damascus and distribute it to the people so none would starve? Now thou sayest he was but a despised slave in Babylon? Had he remained a slave in Babylon, then he might well have been despised. But when, though, through his own efforts, he became a great man in Damascus, the gods indeed abandoned, the gods indeed, indeed condoned his misfortunes and honored him with their respect. Sharundada replied, Oh, sorry. He had remained a slave in Babylon, then he might have well been despised. But when through his own efforts he became a great man in Damascus, the gods indeed condoned his misfortunes and honored him with their respect. After telling me that he was a slave, Sharunetta continued, he explained how anxious he had been to earn his freedom. Now that he had enough money to buy this, he was much disturbed as to what he should do. He was no longer making good sales and feared to leave the support of his master. I protested this, his indecision. Cling no longer to thy master. Get once again the feeling of being a free man. Act like a free man and succeed like one. Decide what thou de desirest to accomplish and then work will aid thee to achieve it. He went on his way saying that he was glad I had shamed him for his cowardice. One day, I went outside the gates again and was surprised to find a great crowd gathering there. When I asked a man for an explanation, he replied, Hast thou not heard? An escaped slave who murdered one of the king's guards has been brought to justice and will this day be flogged to death for his crime. Even the king himself is to be here. 
So dense was the crowd about the flogging post. I feared to go near lest my tray of honey cakes be upset. Therefore, I climbed up the unfinished wall to see over the heads of the people. I was fortunate in having a view of Nebuchadnezzar had himself. I was fortunate in having a view of Nebuchadnezzar himself as he rode up by his goal in his golden chariot. Never had I beheld such grandeur, such robes and hangings of gold cloth and velvet. I could not see the flogging, though I could hear the shrieks of the poor slave. I wondered how one so noble as our handsome king could endure to see such suffering. Yet when I saw he was laughing and joking with his nobles, I knew he was a cruel I knew he was cruel and understood why such inhuman tasks were demanded of the slaves building the walls. After the slave was dead, his body was hung upon a pole by a rope attached to his leg so all might see. As the crowd began to thin, I went close. On the hairy chest I saw tattooed two entwined serpents. It was pirate. The next time I met Arad Gula, he was a changed man. Full of enthusiasm, he greeted me. Behold, the slave thou knewest is now free, man. There was magic in thy words. Already my sales and my profits, my master. She much desires that we move to a strange city where no man shall know I was once a slave. Thus our children shall be above reproach for their father's misfortune. Work has become my best helper. It has enabled me to recapture my confidence and my skill to sell. I was overjoyed that I had been able, even in a small way, to repay him from the encouragement he had given me. One evening, Swasti came to me in deep distress. Thy master is in trouble, I fear for him. Some months ago he lost much of the gaming tables. He pays not the far farmer for his grain nor his honey. He pays not the money lender. They are angry and threaten him. Why should we worry over his folly? We are not his keepers, I replied thoughtlessly. Foolish youth, thou understandest not. To the money lender didst he give thy title to secure a loan. Under the law he can claim thee and sell thee. I know not what to do. He is a good master. Why? Oh, why should such trouble come upon him? Not were Swasti's fears groundless. While I was doing the baking next morning, the money lender returned with a man he called Sassy. This man looked me over and said I would do. The money lender waited not for my master to return, but told Swasti to tell him he had taken me. With only the robe on my back and the purse of pennies hanging free, safely from my belt, I was hurried away from the unfinished baking. I was whirled away from my dearest hopes as the hurricane snatches the tree from the forest and casts it into the surging sea. Again, a gaming house and barley beer had caused me disaster. Sassy was a blunt, gruff man. As he led me across the city, I told him of the good work I had been doing for Nana Aid and said I hoped to do good work for him. His reply offered no encouragement. I like not this work. My master likes it not. The king has told him to send me to build a section of the Grand Canal. Master tells Sassy to buy more slaves, work hard, and finish quick. Bah! How can any man finish a big job quick? Picture a desert with not a tree, just low shrubs and sun, and a sun burning with such fury the water in our barrels became so hot we could scarcely drink it. Then picture rows of men going down into the deep excavation and lugging heavy baskets of dirt up soft, dusty trails from daylight until dark. Picture food served in open troughs from which we helped ourselves like swine. We had no tents, no straw for beds. That was the situation in which I found myself. I buried my wallet in a marked spot, wondering if I would ever dig it up again. 
At first, I worked with goodwill, but as the months dragged on, I felt my spirit breaking. Then the heat fever took hold of my weary body. I lost my appetite and could scarcely eat the mutton and vegetables. At night, I would toss in unhappy wakefulness. In my misery, I wondered if Sabato had not the best plan to shirk and keep his back from being broken in work. Then I recalled my last sight of him and knew his plan was not good. I thought of Pirate with his bitterness and wondered if it might be just as well to fight and kill. The memory of his bleeding body reminded me that his plan was also useless. Then I remembered my last sight of Megiddo. His hands were deeply calloused from hard work, but his heart was light and there was happiness on his face. His was the best plan. Yet I was just as willing to work as Megiddo. He could have not worked harder than I. Why did not my work bring me happiness and success? Was it work that brought Megiddo happiness, or was happiness and success merely the lapse in the lapse of the gods? Was I to work the rest of my life without gaining my desires, without happiness and success? All of these questions were jumbled in my mind, and I had not an answer. Indeed, I was sorely confused. Several days later, when it seemed that I was at the end of my endurance, and my questions still unanswered, Sassy sent for me. A messenger had come from my master to take me back to Babylon. I dug up my precious wallet, wrapped myself in the tattered remnants of my robe, and was on my way. As we rode, the same thoughts of a hurricane whirling me hither and thither, thither kept racing through my feverish brain. I seemed to be living the weird words of a chant from my native town of Harun, besetting a man like a whirlwind, driving him like a storm, whose course no one can foliate, whose destiny no one can foretell. Was I destined to be ever thus punished, for I knew not what? What new miseries and disappointments awaited me? When we rode to the courtyard of my master's house, imagine my surprise when I saw Ardgula awaiting me. He helped me down and hugged me like a long-lost brother. As we went our way, I would have followed him as a slave should follow his master, but he would not permit me. He put his arm about me, saying, I hunted everywhere for thee. When I had almost given up hope, I did meet Swasti, who told me of the moneylender, who directed me to thy noble owner. A hard bargain he did drive, and made me pay an outrageous price, but thou art worth it. Thy philosophy and thy enterprise have been my inspiration to this new success. Megiddo's philosophy, not mine, I interrupted. Megiddo's and thine. Thanks to thee both, we are going to Damascus, and I need thee for my partner. See, he exclaimed, in one moment thou wilt be a free man. So saying, he drew from beneath his robe the clay tablet carrying, tablet carrying my title. This he raised above his head and hurled it to break in a hundred pieces upon the cobblestones. With glee, he stamped upon the fragments until they were but dust. Tears of gratitude filled my eyes. I knew I was the luckiest man in Babylon. Work, thou see, by this, in the time of my greatest distress, didst prove to be my best friend. My willingness to work enabled me to escape from being sold to join the slave gangs upon the walls. <coughs> Excuse me. It also so impressed thy grandfather. He selected me for his partner. Then Hayden Gula questioned, Was work my grandfather's secret key to the golden shekels? It was the only key he had when I first knew him, Sharunado replied. Thy grandfather enjoyed working. The gods appreciated his efforts and rewarded him liberally. I begin to see Hayden Gula was speaking thoughtfully. Work attracted his many friends who admired his industry and the success it brought. Work brought him the honors he enjoyed so much in Damascus. 
Work brought him all those things that I have approved, and I thought work was fit only for slaves. Life is rich with many pleasures for men to enjoy, Sharunata commented. Each has its place. I'm glad that work is not reserved for slaves. Were that the case, I would be deprived of my greatest pleasure. Many things do I enjoy, but nothing takes the place of work. Sharunata and Hayden Gula rode in the shadows of the towering walls up to the massive bronze gates of, bronze gates of Babylon. At their approach, the gate guards jumped to attention and respectfully saluted an honored citizen. With head held high, Sharunata led along led the long caravan through the gates and up the streets of the city. I have always hoped to be a man like my grandfather, Hayden Gula confided to him. Never before did I realize just what kind of man he was. This thou hast shown me. Now that I understand, I do admire him all the more and feel more determined to be like him. I fear I can never repay thee for giving me the true key to his success. From this day forth, I shall use his key. I shall start humbly as he started, which befits my true station far better than jewels and fine robes. So saying, Hayden Gula pulled the jeweled baubles from his ears and the rings from his fingers. Then, reining his horse, he dropped back and rode with deep respect behind the leader of the caravan. Chapter 11 In the pages of his... Oh, the chapter title is A Historical Sketch of Babylon. In the pages of history, there lives no city more glamorous than Babylon. Its very name conjures visions of wealth and splendor. Its treasures of gold and jewels were fabulous. One naturally pictures such a wealthy city as located in a suitable setting of tropical luxury, surrounded by rich natural resources of forests and mines. Such was not the case. It was located beside the Euphrates River in a flat, arid valley. It had no forests, no mines, not even stone for building. It was not even located upon a natural trade route. The rainfall was insufficient to raise crops. Babylon is an outstanding example of man's ability to achieve great objectives, using whatever means are at his disposal. All of the resources supporting this large city were man-developed. All of its riches were man-made. Babylon possessed just two natural resources, a fertile soil and water in the river. With one of the greatest engineering accomplishments of this or any other day, Babylonian engineers diverted the waters from the river by means of dams and immense irrigation canals far out across that arid valley went these canals to pour the life-giving waters over the fertile soil, thus ranks among the first engineering feats known to history. Such abundant crops as were the reward of this irrigation system the world had never seen before. Fortunately, during its long existence, Babylon was ruled by successive lines of kings to whom conquest and plunder were but incidental. While it engaged in many wars, most of these were local or defensive against ambitious conquerors from other countries who coveted the fabul fabulous treasures of Babylon. The outstanding rulers of Babylon live in history because of their wisdom, enterprise, and justice. Babylon produced no strutting monarchs who sought to conquer the known world, that all nations might pay homage to their egotism. As a city, Babylon exists no more. Today, this valley of the Euphrates, once a populous irrigated farming district, is again a windswept arid waste. Gone are the fertile fields, the mammoth cities, and the long caravans of rich merchandise. Dotting this valley are earthen hills. For centuries, they were considered by travelers to be nothing else. The attention of archaeologists were finally attracted to them because of broken pieces of pottery and brick washed down 
by the occasional rainstorms. Many scientists consider the civilization of Babylon and other cities in this valley to be the oldest, of which there is a definite record. Positive dates have been proved reaching back 8,000 years. An interesting fact in this connection is the means, to, the means used to determine these dates. Uncovered in the ruins of Babylon were descriptions of an eclipse of the sun. Modern astronomers, astronomers readily computed the time when such an eclipse visible in Babylon occurred and thus established a known relationship between their calendar and our own. In this way, we have proved that 8,000 years ago, the Sumerites who inhabited Babylonia were living in walled cities. One can only conjecture for how many centuries previous such cities had existed. Their inhabitants were not mere barbarians living within protected, protecting walls. They were an educated and enlightened people. So far as written history goes, they were first they were the first engineers, the first astronomers, the first mathematicians, the first financiers, and the first people to have a written language. In addition to irrigating the valley lands, Babylonian engineers completed another project of similar magnitude. By means of an elaborate drainage system, they reclaimed an immense area of swampland at the mouths of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and put this also under cultivation. Herodotus, Herodotus, sorry, the Greek traveler and historian, visited Babylon while it was in its prime and had and has given us the only known description by an outsider. His writings give a graphic description of the city and some of the unusual customs of its people. He mentions the remarkable fertility of the soil and the beautiful, bountiful harvest of wheat and barley which they produced. The glory of Babylon has faded, but its wisdom has been preserved for us. For this we are indebted to their form of records in that in that distant day the use of paper had not been invented. Instead, they laboriously engraved their writing upon tablets of moist clay. When completed, these were baked and became hard tile. In size, they were about six by eight inches and an inch in thickness. These clay tablets, as they are commonly called, were used much as we use modern forms of writing. Upon them were engraved legends, poetry, history, transcriptions of royal decrees, the laws of the land, titles to property, promissory notes, and even letters which were dispatched by messengers to distant cities. From these clay tablets, we are permitted an insight into the in intimate personal affairs of the people. One of the outstanding war wonders of Babylon was the immense walls surrounding the city. The ancients ranked them with the Great Pyramid of Egypt as belonging to the seven wonders of the world. Queen Semiramis is credited with having erected the first walls during the early history of the city. Modern excavators have been unable to find any trace of the original walls, nor is their exact height known. From mention made by early writers, it is estimated they were about 50 to 60 feet high, faced on the outer side with burnt brick and further protected by a deep moat of water. The later and more fabulous and more famous walls were started about 600 years before the time of Christ by King Nebopolassar. Upon such a gigantic scale did he plan the rebuilding. He did not live to see the work finished. This was left to his son, Nebuchadnezzar, whose name is familiar in biblical history. The height and length of these later walls staggers belief. They are reported upon reliable authority to have been about 160 feet high. <coughs> Excuse me. The equivalent of the height of a modern 15-story office building. 
The total length is estimated as between 9 and 11 miles, so wide as the top that a six-horse chariot could be driven around them. The city of Babylon was organized much like a modern city. There were streets and shops. Peddlers offered their wares through residential districts. Priests associated in magnificent, uh, priests officiated in magnificent temples. Within the city was an inner enclosure for the royal palaces. The walls about this were said to have been higher than those about the city. The Babylonians were skilled in the arts. These included sculpture, painting, weaving, gold working, and the manufacture of metal weapons and agricultural implements. Their jewelers created most artistic jewelry. Many samples have been recovered from the graves of its graves of its wealthy citizens and are now on exhibition in the leading museums of the world. At a very early period, when the rest of the world was still hacking at trees with stone-headed axes or hunting and fighting with flint-pointed spears and arrows, the Babylonians were using axes, spears, and arrows with metal heads. The Babylonians were clever financiers and traders. So far as we know, they were the original inventors of money as a means of exchange of promissory notes and written titles to property. Babylon was never entered by hostile armies until about 540 years before the birth of Christ. Even when the walls were not captured, the story of the fall of Babylon was most unusual. Cyrus, one of the great conquerors of that period, intended to attack the city and hoped to take its impregnable walls. Advisors of Nabonidus, the king of Babylon, persuaded him to go forth to meet Cyrus and give him battle without waiting for the city to be besieged. In the succeeding defeat, the Babylonian army it fled of the defeat to the Babylonian army, it fled away from the city. Cyrus thereupon entered the open gates and took possession without resistance. The eons of time have crumbled to dust the proud walls of its temples, but the wisdom of Babylon endures. And that's it. That's the that's the book. Wow, that's cool. I like that one. I um Yeah, like I said in the beginning, this this was a book that was recommended to me. Um and uh you know, it was more of a challenge. Uh they said you probably never if 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 you don't pick up this book, if I recommend this book to you, like one out of ten people will read it. Two out of ten people might buy it, but only one's gonna read it. So I'm your I'm your one out of ten, bud. I don't remember who it was that did that, but anyway, thanks for being here. If you want the book, let me know. You can have it. Otherwise, it's gonna go on my shelf. Um, yeah, we're gonna start a new book. It's a surprise. It's a really good one. I've read it twice. I'm gonna read it again, and it is time. Okay, later.